Good morning all. Welcome to church at Summerhill. It kind of feels a bit fraudulent to be speaking about Summerhill uh, given today. We could have pulled it off yesterday, um, not so much today. Um, uh, last week and this week and in two weeks' time, uh, we're spending some time reflecting on relationships, particularly on some of the most painful and difficult aspects of what it means to have relationships with others, especially relationships when they go wrong, when they're broken uh, and painful and difficult. Last week we reflected on forgiveness a bit uh, and this morning we're going to reflect on reconciliation. And then in two weeks' time uh, we're going to spend some time reflecting on what place rebuke and warning one another should have uh, in our relationships as well. Uh, the reason why we've got a break next week is next week I'm having some minor surgery on the Friday. Nothing serious, I tore a muscle Apparently, the doctor actually uttered the phrase, now at your age, um, dot, 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 um, it won't fully heal itself, so it's just going to be a day thing, but I thought, oh, I'll give that week a miss um, from preaching, uh, and Ken's going to be looking after us on that Sunday. But just so you know what's happening, why we've got a weird gap in the middle of these three weeks of talks. Uh, but today, we're looking at the topic of reconciliation. What does it look like for our relationships to be reconciled? If forgiveness is hard enough, I think reconciliation sometimes perhaps even asks more of us, uh, what we often don't feel we've got the capacity to give. Uh, so how about we pray and ask that God would help us to hear his words, to delight in them, and that he might give us a comfort where those words are also overwhelming. Let's pray. Uh, dearest Father, we delight in the relationships, the intimacy that you've given us with friends and loved ones, and we grieve, Father, where that has been damaged or broken. Where either we ourselves have caused that damage or, Father, where we find ourselves unable to see past that damage and wrong that's been done to us. Father, we thank you. We delight in and rest in the knowledge of the way in which you've restored our relationship with yourself in Christ. And, Father, we ask that as we reflect on that, you might begin to shape the hopes and possibilities we can see for the restorations, the reconciliation of our own relationships. We pray that your spirit would be working to teach us this morning as we listen to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, down the bottom of the sermon outline, there is the QR code if you wanted to ask a question. Uh, we'll see whether or not we come back to those later on today, but please do feel free to submit them as they perhaps come to mind for you. Uh, in 1995, Nelson Mandela, the president of South Africa, authorised the formation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Some of you might remember discussions of these kind of things uh, happening at the time. It was kind of like a, a court-like body that was set up in South Africa, which aimed at fostering reconciliation between the blacks and the whites of South Africa, between the victims and the perpetrators of the sustained and damaging apartheid policy. Uh, at the time, this Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission was hailed as a groundbreaking work of politics and community reconciliation, restoring damaged relationships. And the Commission rightly recognised that telling the truth about past wrongs was essential 
if there was ever to be any hope of reconciliation in the midst of broken relationships. And yet, as the Commission carried out over several years in the late 90s into the early 2000s, for many, the amnesty that was offered to those who had committed past wrongs in South Africa grievously undermined the Commission's ability to truly foster full reconciliation, at least in the minds of many people who had suffered injustice. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission's attempts at racial reconciliation, as much as they were lauded and praised, are also a pretty sobering reminder of just how difficult, how fraught, and at times how impossibly out of reach reconciliation can feel across broken relationships. We know similar griefs in Australia, in our nation's own dealings and wronging of the Indigenous peoples. Uh, last week, we saw that if there is to be any hope of reconciliation and restoration for our groaning and our wounded relationships, then it will require at some point forgiveness, a willingness to not pursue our demand for vengeance, to cancel the unpayable debts of wrongdoing that others owe to us. Now, in fact, the ultimate goal of Jesus' own spectacular forgiveness from the cross was so that even as His enemies, we might be reconciled with God, that our intimacy with God might be fully restored. Uh, have a look with me at this verse, it's going to pop up on the screen from Romans chapter 5. Quite stunning of the way in which forgiveness and reconciliation and our wrong are spoken of in just a couple of verses. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? We read there that God's forgiveness of our past debts, our past wrongs, opens up new possibilities for our reconciliation with Him, a full restoration of relationship with Him. And you notice that this move, this reconciliation, it happened, it began when we were still His enemies, before we had taken any action towards Him, repentance or otherwise. Uh, in fact, it might remind us of that prayer that the Lord Jesus Himself prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do forgiveness offered before we had made any kind of move back towards Him. In fact, what is stunning is that we might write that off as, that, that's just a prayer that only the Son of God could pray. But it wasn't long before the first Christian martyr, Stephen, knelt in the dust as he was being stoned and prayed that God wouldn't hold that sin against those who were in the midst of killing Him. Stunning, isn't it? It's a forgiveness, the Scriptures say, that opens up the possibility of reconciliation, even if that reconciliation doesn't flow automatically from the moment of forgiveness. And yes, as we acknowledged last week, our own practice of forgiving others often doesn't seem to result in or to achieve anything close to full reconciliation with each other, does it? Isn't that a grief? Even our forgiveness of those that we love deeply can often feel pointless and futile, let alone our attempts to forgive those who are our enemies, who haven't made any move back towards us. 
And I think it's worth us reflecting for a moment, before we go much further, that the nature of how God reconciles His relationship with us is a little bit different to the shape that our own reconciliation with each other might be able to take. The truth is that God can reconcile others, us, to Himself in ways that just aren't open to us. Uh, We read in the Scriptures that God can turn stubborn hearts of people back to Him. We can't pull that off, can we? Wouldn't it be wonderful if in the midst of an argument, we could send our spirit into that other person and turn their heart back to us? I'm sure we'd find a way to abuse it and mistreat it terribly uh, if we had that capacity, but we can't pull that off. The Scriptures tell us that God can open blinded eyes to how we have wronged Him. We don't have the capacity to do that in other people, do we? Even though perhaps we often try pretty hard to pull that off. And only God can enlighten darkened minds. We don't have the capacity to change others so that they might be reconciled to us. Not in the way that God can. There are clearly, these are clearly changes that lie beyond what even the most forgiving of us has the power to achieve and to work in others. And so recognising, even with tears, recognising our limitations in this respect can give us an enormous uh, sparing from despair and heartache. We mustn't crush ourselves or one another under the weight of expectations that even God Himself doesn't lay upon us. Reconciliation isn't always something that we can affect. Uh, The Scriptures give explicit explicit recognition, uh, recognition, sorry, to the unhappy and heartbreaking reality that even when we do forgive others freely, full recognition, full reconciliation sometimes lies beyond what we can achieve. Uh, Let me give you a couple of verses that give voice to this sad reality. Uh, From Romans chapter 12, verse 17, uh, in the midst of speaking about forgiveness, there in verse 17, Paul writes, do not repay anyone evil for evil, that's letting go of vengeance that we looked at last week, and he continues on, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone, if it is possible as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There's a few recognitions there, isn't it, of how difficult living at peace with others can be, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you. There are limits that we will face in our pursuit of uh, reconciliation with those with whom we have broken and damaged relationships. Uh, you might remember from last year when we were looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and the Apostle Paul was writing about that Christian wife who has been left abandoned by her pagan husband, a pagan husband who doesn't want to be married to a Christian anymore and who leaves her and Paul compassionately recognises in that situation that the Christian wife who's been abandoned often won't have either the freedom or the power to pursue and bring about reconciliation with that unbelieving husband who has left them. And I do think that there is some mild comfort that these recognitions that Scripture gives can bring to us. There will be those of us who are hoping that we will find the key to restoring and reconciling that relationship that has been giving us grief for years. There is some comfort when that doesn't happen in the knowledge that Scripture understands that, recognises it, and grieves along with us when that is the case. 
And yet, despite our very genuine limitations when it comes to reconciling with each other, reconciliation is still something that we are called on to eagerly pursue. Can you look up with me? Uh, grab your Bibles. I'm sorry I didn't remind you about this at the start. Grab open your Bibles again. It's only a brief verse, but we'll read this one from the reading that we had this morning. If you turn to page 969, page 969 in Matthew's Gospel... page 969. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been warning against the spiritual danger that's attached to allowing others to stay angry at us. He reflects on what it means for one person to call another a fool, uh, to express hatred towards the other. And having reflected on that spiritual danger, Jesus continues in verse 23 of chapter 5, verse 23. Therefore, Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Jesus here is describing a situation in which a man has gone up to the temple in order to offer a gift of thanks to God for the forgiveness and reconciliation that they've received from God. And as this man is about to offer this gift of thanks to God at the altar, he remembers that a friend of his, a brother or a sister, has a complaint against him, a a grievance against him. That is, that the brother or sister believes that he has done something to wrong them. Now, whether the other person's complaint is fair or not, seems to be beside the point for Jesus. He doesn't mention anything about whether the other person has got things right or not. Perhaps there is a good reason for some sister to have a grievance against this man. Perhaps the, perhaps the brother or sister has no good reason at all to be resentful or angry of the one who is offering this gift. Either way, Jesus says, the knowledge that God offers this man the possibility of reconciliation with God the Father should be enough to stop in in his tracks from offering a gift to God and instead to go and seek out reconciliation with the one who has an outstanding grievance against him. You can see there, can't you, the urgency with which Jesus is urging us to seek after reconciliation with others? Uh, There are some of us who do not deal very well with patiently working through reconciliation. We we want it to be over and done with like that, like a band-aid, rip it off quick. And in fact, this this verse might seem to give a little bit of a, a suggestion that, you know, you can demand or expect the other person to offer you reconciliation quickly. After all, it says, go and go and be reconciled and then come back and give your offering. Frustratingly, Jesus doesn't unpack for us in these verses exactly what seeking reconciliation might look like when this man actually arrives at his brother or his sister's house to seek reconciliation. Does Jesus imagine that this reconciliation can be achieved in just a five-minute conversation before he heads back to the temple? We don't know. Is this just the first step in what is probably going to be a far longer process of seeking reconciliation with the one who has a grievance against them? We don't know from here. Is reconciliation something that the man can simply expect? He will be granted by the other person. Or or perhaps 
is it going to be a more difficult and longer process? Jesus' words here aren't giving us a program for exactly what it'll look like for that reconciliation to be sought. Rather, he is saying, if we are those who value our reconciliation that we've received from God the Father's hand, then it will be at the forefront of our mind to value reconciliation with brothers and sisters who might have grievances against us. Now, the, re- the reality is that reconciliation is ty- uh, typically a difficult and fraught process to pursue, even for the most mature of Christian believers. Uh, let me read to you this little snippet from one of Paul's letters, his, Paul, his letter to the Philippian church. And here, we don't know many details about this situation, but here he's addressing two people that he's hoping will be reconciled with one another. Uh, Paul writes, I plead with Eudia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Eudia and Syntyche, uh, we read here, are Paul's co-workers. They have been somehow involved with Paul in his mission and his work. They are, to all intents and purposes, it seems, mature Christian believers, and yet they are at odds with one another in some way. In fact, Paul is pleading that they might agree with one another, that they might be reconciled. And we don't know what their disagreement was. We don't know whether it was a long-standing one or a recent one. It seems, perhaps, that it was a well-known one, that Paul would write it in a letter. And it seems that it was probably also this disagreement or this rift was the cause of communal grief. But notice here, Paul says that these two women are going to need help in their seeking agreement with one another. It's something Paul pleads for. Those friends who imagine that full reconciliation can be easily or speedily embraced and enacted have almost certainly failed to understand what genuine reconciliation actually requires before it can occur fully. Uh, In my experience, those who most adamantly insist that reconciliation happen quickly, immediately, often prove to be especially blind to the depth of damage and hurt that they have caused in a breakdown of a relationship, whether their intention, they, they meant it or not, whether it was intentional or not. Since we ourselves can't change and transform others who have wronged us in the way that God can, what might we rightly expect of others before we can consider our relationship genuinely restored. That's what I want to spend the rest of our time together this morning reflecting on. Uh, And there are going to be three general spheres that I'm going to reflect on a little bit together. Uh, They'll be up there on the screen. I think for true, full reconciliation to happen between two people, there will need to be recognition, restitution and repentance. Recognition, restitution, and repentance. Now, the Scriptures, I don't think, give a a hard and fast order in which these all might have to happen. Sometimes it'll happen quickly. Sometimes you won't need to go through all these steps and it'll be just a quick conversation that will be able to reconcile you with someone. But hopefully these will give you some kind of fuller picture of just how significant and weighty it is to seek after reconciliation with another. That we might not treat it lightly and flippantly that we might know how to pray for each other and be gentle with each other in our pursuit 
of reconciliation. We'll look at each of these areas in turn. First of all, recognition. Reconciliation will usually require some shared recognition or acknowledgement of both the wrong that's been committed and the cost of forgiving that wrong. Where someone is unable to acknowledge how they've damaged or dishonoured a relationship, it will be difficult for them to ever make much progress in reconciling, in restoring it. Not impossible, maybe in slight things it'll be possible, but when the wrong is more grave, very difficult. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with the way in which people speak about gaslighting behaviour. Uh, now, I'm not going to speak about gaslighting as an official uh, psychological pattern of behaviour, but let's just take the general pattern of gaslighting type kinds of behaviour to reflect on this morning. Those perhaps who minimise the wrongs that they've committed. Have you ever been in the midst of trying to reconcile with someone and they've just had this continual and repeated pattern of minimising actually the wrong that they had committed against you? Or insisting that the grieved person is simply oversensitive, is imagining the wrong as not being real or genuine or actually all that significant. Such kinds of refusal to properly acknowledge a wrong can make reconciliation exceedingly difficult to pursue. In some cases, such a refusal to recognise a wrong might actually lead to a permanent and recognised breaking of relationship. Paul addresses that, you might remember, in 1 Corinthians as well, for the man who was unrepentant in his own sexual immorality. The Scriptures urge us, though, to gen genuinely to recognise the wrongs that we have committed against others, if we wish to see reconciliation. Uh, both sorrow and confession will have a part to play in how we recognise the wrongs that we have committed against others. Uh, first of all, sorrow. Let me read to you these words from 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is a, a letter that Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. He has suffered a grief and a damage in his relationship with them as a church. Uh, and there's many hints at Paul's attempts to reconcile, to restore relationship with them throughout the course of this letter. Uh, chapter 2, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes this, Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God wishes, God intended. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. And Paul here is reflecting on the earnest sorrow that the Corinthian church have displayed for how they had previously dishonoured and wronged him as an apostle. The Corinthians' expression of sorrow communicates both a genuine grief at the relational consequences of how they treated Paul, and even more importantly, this sorrow gives birth to a desire to repent, that is, to actually change how they'd relate to Paul in the future. We'll come back and reflect on repentance a little bit later on this morning. Paul, though, says here that godly sorrow, sorrow that is in line with what God values, can be of great value in the beginning processes towards starting reconciliation. But of course, by itself, simply feeling sorrow does little to restore damaged relationships. We don't want to kid ourselves about that. For we can be sorry about the consequences of our actions without specifically recognise, re recognising that we've actually even wronged anyone, without actually ever recognising that we should have acted differently. 
It's possible, isn't it, to experience sorrow just for the result, but not to recognise any wronging of ourselves in our behaviour. Reconciliation will often also require us to confess, to confess specifically what it is that we are sorry about. Uh, Have a look at these words from the Old Testament, from Numbers chapter 5. There, the writer of Numbers is addressing how to go about dealing with a wrong that has occurred in community. He says, any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord is guilty and must confess the sin that they have committed. They must make full restitution for the wrong that they have done. Add a fifth to the value uh, to it and give it all to the person that they have wronged. Here the Scriptures are calling us to recognise, that is to confess to actually name the precise nature of our wronging against another, the character of our guilt against another person. When we confess our wrong, we're communicating our understanding of how we had damaged the relationship itself. And that opens us up to perhaps further clarification or correction. I wonder if you've ever gone to apologise to someone and they've said, actually, that's not what I think you did wrong. Have you ever perhaps had that experience or you've had someone come and apologise to you, repent to you about something and you've gone, that's got nothing to do with why I'm so angry at you. The act of confessing specifically how we've wronged another person names what wrong we think we've committed and opens us up to conversation about whether we've actually understood things correctly. Notice also that this same passage also introduces a second aspect of reconciliation that is restitution. So, we've looked at recognising the wrong. Secondly, restitution. Uh, Restitution is mentioned in this verse. You can see it highlighted there in the second part of the verse. Restitution is certainly not about buying another person's forgiveness. It's not about paying our way free of a guilty conscience. In making restitution, we're acknowledging the specific wrong we've committed through our actions not just our words, but our actions, by attempting to restore something of what we have wrongly taken from or denied to the other person. Uh, Notice the direction there to pay back an extra fifth uh, of what it was taken away. It says, don't, don't just pay them back what you denied them, add an extra fifth on and pay all of it back to the person that you've wronged. That's how to make restitution Uh, this passage is saying. Uh, What's that about? I think it's about an acknowledgement that the wrongs we often commit against each other can often have a complicated and compounding factors to them that can't easily be simply calculated, tallied up or paid off. A wronging or a denying of good to someone in the past can have been causing pain and grief and wrong to them for years and years and years perhaps before we ever get around to apologising or seeking forgiveness or reconciliation for that wrong. Simply just paying back what we owed them at the time might not be sufficient to fully recognise the nature of our having wronged them. Uh, Perhaps you might remember a New Testament story, uh, uh, an engagement that Jesus had with a tax collector that kind of reprises this same kind of idea of uh, restitution. Uh, Jesus, you might remember, had been out teaching. He had a huge crown following around him. And there was a man called Zacchaeus who was a tax collector. He was a crook. He, he used his position as a tax collector to steal money from others. 
He was up in a tree wanting to get a glimpse of Jesus. You might remember that Jesus stopped under the tree, called Zacchaeus down, said, I'm coming to your place today. And what happened when Zacchaeus was back at his house with Jesus? Zacchaeus recognizes the wrong of how he'd treated others in the past. And he declares, if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount of what I wronged them. Zacchaeus isn't seeking to buy forgiveness or pardon with those actions of his, or to ease his conscience. He's acknowledging with his present actions the gravity of the past wrongs that he committed against others, and seeking to, best that he can do, to make them right. Uh, Restitution, you could say, is almost like a retrospective attempt at what the Bible more broadly speaks about as a repentance, a determination to change, to turn around and to change our pattern of behaviour. And we saw the importance of repentance uh, for reconciliation in the previous passage we looked at from 2 Corinthians, where Paul was speaking about the Corinthian church's godly sorrow leading to repentance. Their sorrow, their their recognition and grief that their behaviour didn't match what God would expect led to a repentance, a change in their behaviour towards Paul, a longing to treat him well and rightly from that moment on. And friends, if the relationships that we've wronged in the past are to be restored, reconciled, fully or even just partially, we'll often need to display repentance, we'll often need to display that our our behaviour really has been realigned towards seeking the good of that person who we had previously wronged. I mean, I know there are a lot of ideas in that little stretch of time that we've spent together, reflecting on recognition, restitution, and repentance. Maybe I can give a bit of a concrete, slightly more concrete example of how those different threads might come together in any one circumstance. Uh, imagine that I have wronged a ministry colleague of mine by personally claiming public credit for some ministry venture or work that they alone should have been honoured for and recognised for. But I claimed credit for it myself. My relationship with that colleague would undoubtedly have been damaged by that kind of deception, wouldn't it? Not just because I'd wronged them personally, but I would have wronged them in front of the whole church and the broader Christian community, perhaps even. Would their forgiveness of me alone be sufficient to fully and completely restore the relationship to what it once was? Likely not. They might graciously forgive me, they might graciously choose not to enact vengeance to make me pay for my wrongdoing, but our relationship wouldn't have been reconciled and restored in full. In this situation, reconciliation would likely require from me a recognition of my wrongdoing. It might require a godly sorrow, a genuine grief at how my actions fell far short of God's expectations for how I should have treated my colleague, my brother or my sister in Christ, my fellow worker. And because I took credit publicly, because I wronged them publicly, I'd also likely need to publicly confess my deception against them. To confess that in claiming credit for what was not mine, I'd stolen honour and recognition from them. Uh, Reconciliation would likely also require that restitution be made to my colleague. I might need to restore public recognition to them for what was actually their work, 
They've been denied recognition, honour, gratitude, thanks for the work that they've done. I might need to restore that to them. I might need to correct my CV and past boastful social media posts about what I had achieved. Perhaps I'd need to resign from any positions of influence that I'd wrongly received or achieved because of my public deception and seek to make sure that they were honoured and given opportunities for the work that they had actually done. Perhaps I'd need to work steadily over many years towards setting the record straight, towards seeing my colleagues' rightful honour re-established. Every time I had a conversation, years, years from now, when someone said, oh, I remember how you did that amazing thing, restitution would be redirecting the honour that I'd stolen from myself and back to the one who I'd wronged by claiming credit for it. And then finally, reconciliation would likely require that I display repentance. I'd need to display that I wasn't going to repeat such unjust behaviour continually and routinely again and again, especially when a similar opportunity came my way to benefit from doing so. I might need to display a renewed and ongoing commitment in seeking to honour others rightly for the work they do, not just for the particular colleague that I'd wronged, but for all those who I work with and alongside, showing a deliberate changed pattern of honouring them rather than seeking to use them for my own honour. Recognition, restitution and repentance. Now, they need not be done in that particular order. In fact, when we're seeking to reconcile with another person, it's not a right that we can claim against them, that they should do it according to our timetable. If we were to do so, we might just further wrong them. Perhaps there might be someone that we had grieved so grievously that they weren't ready to speak with us. It doesn't mean we can't start to seek reconciliation, but it might mean that we begin with repentance by changing our behaviour and our patterns of acting towards that person and towards all others. Maybe after 10 years of repentant behaviour, some of those other steps of reconciliation might begin to open themselves up and show themselves possible with the person that I'd wronged. We don't need to do each of those steps in some strict order and force the other person to do it according to our timetable. But we are to pursue it with every opportunity that others and God himself affords us. The Apostle Paul recognises the painful process of reconciliation and restoration, that it will often require the patient encouragement of others for us in our pursuit of it, that it will often not come quickly, easily or without difficult and painful complications and maybe even further wrongs being done. Now have a look with me as we finish at these verses from 2 Corinthians. Same letter where Paul is seeking reconciliation in some measure with the Corinthian church and he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, finally brothers and sisters rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. A couple of things just to notice here, Paul urges the Corinthians to strive for full restoration. It's obviously not something that will come quickly or easily or automatically or instinctively. If you have to strive for it, Paul is recognising that there may be many burdens, many barriers and hurdles towards achieving it. But we are not to shirk 
this call to seek reconciliation with those that we have wronged. And notice there also that rather than the rest of us offering recrimination, we're to offer encouragement to one another in the pursuit of reconciliation. It might not happen quickly. We might need to commit ourselves to walking alongside someone for the long haul as they seek reconciliation, to offer restitution, repentance. And then finally there, notice at the very end of that verse, that we're told the God of love and all peace will be with you. Friends, where our own attempts at love and peacemaking either fall far short or fail completely when we're seeking it with one another, the Scriptures assure us that the God of love and peace is nonetheless dwelling with us. He is at work work amongst us. It is not a struggle that God abandons us to pursue in our own strength, this work of reconciliation, with only our own resources. Elsewhere, the Scriptures urge us to pray for those who persecute and wrong us. The implication is that we need God's work, God's help, in order to continue pursuing after it. And if God can reconcile us to Himself through Jesus when we were still His enemies, then, friends, don't lose heart, because He can certainly reconcile us to one another, who in Christ are brothers and sisters with each other. Don't lose heart. The God of love and all peace is with us. And where we are powerless to effect reconciliation, God Himself will not fail to keep on working. Let's pray and entrust ourselves to Him. Dearest Father, we confess that we bring with us griefs and pains this morning of wronged and damaged relationships. In fact, as we've listened to you this morning, Father, perhaps new griefs and wrongs and hurts and pains have been brought to mind once again, perhaps for the first time in quite some time. Deal mercifully with us, Father. Comfort us, assure us that in our dealings with you, all of our wrongs have been dealt with, that you have reconciled us fully to yourself, that there is nothing no intimacy that you now withhold from us, despite how we've treated you in the past. And with the comfort that that knowledge gives, Father, we ask that you would fuel within us an urgency to seek reconciliation with one another as well. Give us the humility to do it in the timing that others are willing to engage with us on. But help us, Father, not to lose heart when the going seems difficult stalled or just so long difficult and drawn out remind us that you the god of love and peace are with us and you will bring full reconciliation with our brothers and sisters where we are unable to make any headway ourselves we ask all this in jesus name amen please feel free to send through any questions via that qr code uh, and please stand and join with me as we sing Uh, in response to God's Word.